0: Hi, I'm Armin Shimmerman, the author of Valyria, and you're listening to Spoiler Country.
1: Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal of the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts. John, and Kendrick, and Jeff, welcome to Spoiler Country.
2: Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time, and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on SpoilerVersion.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit
3: subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or leave us voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. All right. Welcome back
2: to Spoiler Country. I am Ken Regan. Johnny is off today. And today on the show, well, it's Armin Shimmerman, isn't it? You'll know Armin Shimmerman if you're a DS9 fan, because he played Quark. He's also an author and wrote the book, Illeria, Betrayer of Angels. Uh, that book is one of Jeff's all-time favorites, and so he was super excited. I mean, super excited to be able to sit down with Armin and have this amazing conversation. And if you are a lover of, well, if you love Star Trek especially Deep Space Nine. This is when you can't miss. So sit back, relax. Let's listen to Armin in his own words.
1: Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Mr. Armin Shimmerman.
0: How's it going, sir? Very good, thank you. I just got my second COVID shot, no more than about two hours ago, and oh, I'm wow. feeling pretty good. Oh, is it? Was it the Moderna?
1: Yes, it was. Ooh, okay. Well, I wish you luck. I got mine last week, my second shot. It can be a little rough after 24 hours, so I'm glad I have you now and not tomorrow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> good for both of us. But I'm glad you're feeling well. Thank you.
1: So, I was reading up um, a little about your life, and I actually read that. When you were were 16 years old, your mother moved you to Los Angeles and enrolled enrolled you in a drama program to meet some people.
0: Yes. She was concerned that I wasn't making any friends, and uh, she had a distant cousin who was a drama teacher. I had no desire to go into acting whatsoever, but she introduced me to her cousin, George, and for about two years, I made a trek out to where he was every Tuesday night and performed scenes and, and learned about that, and the rest is history.
1: Now, did you had you already demonstrated a interest in drama, or was it something that your mother kind of pulled you into, and you kind of got that you discovered later? I
0: was sort of pulled in by my mother. I think she regretted <laughs> it, later. but I, I think no, I don't think I had any desire to go into the theater. I I, I thought at that time that I was going to be an attorney, and uh, and indeed, when I entered college, my major was poli sci.
1: So, was it effective? Did it prove?
0: that you find a way to make friends through drama? I did. I did. The very next year after spending time with George, ironically, my English teacher at the new high school I was at asked me to audition for a play that he was directing. I thought, okay, well, why not? It didn't matter to me whether I got cast or not. And uh, lo and behold, I I looked at the board the next day and and not only had they cast me, but unbeknownst to me, uh, they had cast me as the lead. The play was called The Crucible, is called The Crucible by Arthur Miller. And I had the good fortune to direct it myself a couple of years ago at the theater that I am a part of called Antius.
1: That is that is very awesome. I mean, someone like myself, and um, I'm also a teacher at a therapeutic high school with a lot of kids who deal with anxiety and had probably issues making connections with other people. And I think
0: that's very interesting. So that the stage was a great way to meet other people. It was indeed. and And some of the people that I met in high school, primarily in the drama department, became lifelong friends. One of them became a girlfriend, but but uh, some of them were lifelong friends. And I learned about the community, the theatrical community, which is very tight knit and uh, very supportive.
1: So were you a, the type of kid who did have issues with anxiety and like shyness or were you, was that not the issue at the time?
0: Oh no, I've always had issues with shyness. I've learned to overcome it because of the acting and because of doing interviews but I, my ability to to become somebody else was a relief, and I didn't have to worry about what I was saying because it was written for me, and they couldn't really say that I was feeling that way because it's what was written on the page. So it, it was a solution for my anxiety, my my concern that I wasn't living up to other people's expectations. I learned to live up to my own expectations.
1: I think that's absolutely wonderful. Like, like, like I said, someone like myself, who I deal with anxiety all the time, l- a lot of my students deal with it. I think that's a really wonderful thing to think that it was theater
0: that helped you break out of the show, as it were. It did, it did. And it gave me a community of friends immediately. I, I didn't have to go out and look for them. And, and, and it was enormously helpful. Uh, and, I, and I have been dependent upon a community of friends for ever since most of my life, all of my friends, I would say, are friends from the theater. I, although I must say, I branched out in other areas, and I've made friends there. But usually, my friends from the theater are the are the deepest friends, are the most long lasting friends.
1: Do you think that's because of, as you use a title that used the crucible of acting? The, the, because you had to perform together, work together. That you think that helped yes, create a, it's the bond. A,
0: it's a trapeze act. When you perform on stage, the other person has to be there for you to catch you, and you have to be there to catch them. It is a great a great exercise in trust, and because of that trust, great friendships are are formed because of that.
1: That is awesome. So, as you said, when you went to UCLA, your first goal was to become a political scientist?
0: That's right. And I went from being a poli-sci major to becoming an English major. I never became a theater major because, uh, really, when I went to college, I found my passion for Shakespeare and wanted to study that as much as I could, and I felt being an English major was more propitious than uh, being a theater major. I was taking theater classes at UCLA and outside of UCLA, and I continued to do that after I graduated, but I I wanted to learn as much as I could about English, and I felt being an English major would do that for me, and of course, here we are talking about a novel I've written, which uh, is about Shakespeare.
1: Well, as someone who teaches high school English, that was the right call. English is always the right call.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, many people when, when I'm interviewed are surprised that I wasn't a theater major, that I wasn't a cinema major. I learned those, those techniques after I graduated, primarily from the doing, because I was lucky enough to always have work. I learned from the doing, not necessarily from class. Although for anyone who's taking class, I recommend that highly. Your teachers will teach you great techniques.
1: Well, I know, I mean, what what you were doing at UCLA must have been phenomenal because I read that you were one of only eight people out of 900 to be chosen to be an apprentice at the
0: Old Globe Theater. Yes, slightly off, 800 people, but there was only eight of us. And it was the beginning of a, of a long career and the beginning of what I learned to, I learned to trust my luck. And that was the first of many, many, many lucky things that happened to me. And I was very grateful. It was a great learning experience that summer and some of the people there convinced me to move to new york which i did right after attending after being part of the san diego shakespeare festival and and that again was a lucky event and and again very nice things happened because of that
1: and and i know like you said you used the word lucky but once again it had to be
0: a lot of skill a lot of talent well what do you think a lot of people have skills a lot of people are very talented but without luck, your career doesn't progress. I was lucky to have skills and luck. And, and you know, people will sort of poo-poo the luck. But I, I take it very seriously. So what did you
1: learn at the, at the curriculum at the Old Glow Theater that helped you in a way that maybe you wouldn't have
0: been aware of as an actor? Right. It wasn't curriculum because as I was an actor and I wasn't taking any classes. I was performing in three Shakespearean plays. And watching the elder actors Watching the actors who had been performing Shakespeare for a great long time, I learned by watching them and seeing what they did and wondering, well, how do they make that sound so familiar, so modern? And by watching them and occasionally asking them, I learned a great deal. I've, I've spent my life watching other performers and questioning how they do that and and if I can find the answers, try to incorporate that into my own skills.
1: So you you must you must have a great ear for language, just the way it's pronounced I and said.
0: Yeah, I, I grew up. My father was an immigrant. My mother was the child of an immigrant. Language, there were several languages spoken in my house. I think I do indeed have an ear for language. I speak a little bit of most of the Romance languages. It is a great disappointment that I still haven't learned a word of Latin, really, but someday (laughs) I hope to get to that. But I I think I do indeed have an ear for languages. And and because I have an ear for language, it parlays not only into my acting, which is when when I teach acting, language is is central, uh, but it's also very important for the way I write as well.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll say Latin is extremely hard. I took Latin for a semester in college. And my professor told me to leave. So <laughs> it's a very hard language to learn. My the exact words of my professor was: "If you stay, you will fail. Please get out now." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> it's very hard language.
0: <laughs> I, I'm very happy for you. Two professors over the course of my 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 scholastic career did that for me, and I'm very grateful that they did. So I'm glad that that happened to you as well.
1: Yes. <laughs> so. Uh, later, you also uh, you did uh, became a very successful theater actor. You played. You were in place like Saint Joan. You played in Remember Mama. What is performing
0: live life for me? Is it? I mean, is the energy really that tangible? Oh my God! It's night and day, night and day. It's why uh, many actors who are from the stage and and make their living in TV and film almost invariably try to find a way to get back to the theater. The theater is. Again it's a trapeze act. You walk out on stage, there's no net. You have to you have to be ready and prepared and it's always going to be different because every night you have a different audience. And because you have a different audience, you have a different energy in the room and you have to you have to play to that energy and that energy envelops you and changes you. TV and film is different. It's a very quiet set. No one is allowed to move, no one is allowed to talk and there's no sense of of you affecting somebody else except the other actor, which is a good thing, but it's not the same as knowing that you're affecting an audience as well. It, it is, my heart belongs to the theater. My wallet belongs to TV and film. <laughs>
1: is, is, is it like a drug? I mean, do you feel withdrawal when you're not on stage?
0: Uh, when I'm in a play between 8 o'clock and 10:15, when the play usually ends, yes, there is a withdrawal. When do I go back on? When is my, when's my next scene? Uh, it takes a lot of energy to do that, So sometimes as I get older, it's a relief not to have to do a show that night. But uh, invariably, if I'm in a show and I have to do a show that night, I'm very energized. I'm very excited. The day is spent preparing for that eight o'clock curtain.
1: That's that's amazing. And and I also read that you, you have performed in one third of Shakespeare's canon of plays.
0: I have. I've been very lucky. As I said before, I started out in the Shakespeare Festival. I've worked many Shakespeare festivals since then. I've worked at every level of the theater that one can imagine in the United States, whether it's local theater or Broadway. And uh, I've been lucky enough to do, as a, as you said, about a third of the canon. Some of the plays I've done more than once. Hamlet I've done more than once. Richard III, I've done more than once. A number of other plays I've done more than once. And there's a great benefit to doing not only a play more than once, but doing a part more than once. Because... When you start at the second time, you have the background of, of what you remember from the first time so that you're not starting from scratch. And invariably for me, I never, ever try to repeat what I did the first time. For instance, I've played The Fool and King Lear twice, and the two performances are radically different. I was, I was gung-ho about not recreating that first performance in the second production.
1: Now, as I said before, I I teach English and one one play that my seniors are reading or is Hamlet. And obviously when the question of of the play is whether or not Hamlet is potentially crazy or is the ghost real? Is everything he's seeing legit when you're playing the part, when, when you're playing like Hamlet, do you play him more straight or do you play with that possibility that he may actually be kind of losing it?
0: Well, that's the that's dependent upon the actor who's playing the part. People have been playing it all m- many different ways for over four hundred years. Some, I'm sure, have played it that he's slightly gone insane. Some are very much playing it as a theatrical insanity. It's really up to the actor and the director and the production. For me, any one of those possibilities is a possibility. You can play it as long as the play is not eviscerated by by a bad. Choice. You can play it any way you like. That's the, that's the great joy of seeing a production like Hamlet done by dozens of different actors because each actor will bring their own take on it and you learn something from every one of those choices, every one of those takes from those different actors.
1: What is it about Shakespeare that fascinates you personally so much? Language,
0: it's easy, language. 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 It's
1: like the beauty of it or the complexity of it? Both. Both?
0: Both, both, both. First is the beauty when I when I understand it. But there are many, many lines in Shakespeare that are difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. And so the complexity puts my analytical mind to work, and I work on figuring out what that line means. And not only what it means to me, but also historically what it meant. Because what historically it may have meant and what it means now may be two different things. But it is essential. As I tell my students, it is essential that you, the actor, must know what the historical meaning of that line is. And then, if it's possible, you can warp it a little so that it has more of a modern meaning.
1: Do you find that over the years, how you interpret a line has changed? Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I'll give you an example. There's a very famous line from Romeo and Juliet that many people have heard. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Now, because of my studies in rhetoric, I, I didn't quite understand the meaning of that line when I first uh, read it, when I first saw it on stage. It, rhetoric teaches many things. That they're called figures. And one of the figures is the figure of antithesis. And antithesis is opposites, like to be or not to be. Mm. That's an opposite. And perhaps the most famous antithesis in Shakespeare. But in this line, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and juliet is the sun the antithesis that's being explored is the dim candlelight that's coming from juliet's window versus the blazing light of the of the noonday sun and so an actor who doesn't know the line would say it something like this what light through yonder window breaks it is the east and juliet is the sun because they're they're thinking that the line is about how how wonderful it'll be to see juliet mm. but that's not really the historical meaning of the line let me give it to you what i think is the more historical version which is what light through yonder window breaks it is the east and juliet is the sun so that you see that you hear the antithesis between mm. how much candle how much wattage there is in the candle how much more wattage there is in the sun
1: that is awesome that is amazing i mean it, you must have spent years just researching yes like, i have uh,
0: yeah yeah I've been doing it since college, uh, during college. I never stopped. Yeah, I've been researching and researching forever, forever. One more other thing. In that production of, uh, in one of the productions at the Globe, I was playing a character called Costard in Love's Labor's Lost. In my script, I had a line that, well, the, c- the character of Costard comes on stage and he's got, he's just hurt his shin and two of the characters who are already on stage list a number of ointments or salves to help him to cure his shin. And my line in the script was, no remedy in the mall, that's mall, M-A-L-L. And that didn't make sense to me, but I was a young actor and thought, okay, a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense to me. So, you know, I'll just have to live with it. But, but again, my analytical mind said, no, try to find out what this means. And I searched and I searched and there were lots of different authors explaining what mall meant and how it fit in the line. And I, it didn't seem to fit rather well, but I thought they're, more, they're smarter than I am. And therefore, I have to accept it. I eventually came upon a reference that opened the door to a lot of Shakespearean study for me. And, and that particular source said that it's a spelling mistake. It's not no remedy in the mall, but rather no remedy in them all.
1: Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. (laughs) That's
0: awesome. And that's when I began to really, really study Shakespeare, because then I began to see, wait a second, wait a second. So you're telling me that the first folio is not perfect because all, all my college life, I had been told the first folio was perfect. And it's not, there are lots of mistakes. And the other thing that I came to learn, while I, while I was studying, uh, in college and after, is that spelling, as we understand it, was was not the modern day spelling. Not that words weren't spelt the way we spell them today. That's a different kettle of fish altogether. But rather, the idea of spelling a word correctly did not come into being. Until about a hundred years after Shakespeare passed away, until Samuel Johnson's dictionary, so that words could be spelt any way that the playwright or the editor wanted to spell them. And because of that, sometimes it's confusing because perhaps it's this word, perhaps it's another. Perhaps the greatest example of that is in from Hamlet. oh, uh, oh, that there's two too solid flesh. Would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a. D- Most Americans will say, "Oh, that this too, too solid flesh." Most of the British actors will say "sullied," because in the First Folio, the word that's there could be "solid," could be "sullied." Depends on how you, how you think the word, which word you think is right. But the spelling for both of them w- would be the same. You wouldn't have a definitive spelling.
1: That, that is awesome. It, it really is an amazing, complex puzzle. Like that, you can apparently in
0: indefinitely unwind over and over again with potentially different results. That's right, that's exactly right. And that is the, as you asked me, that's a very long answer for your very nice question. What intrigues me, both the language and the uh, analytics of it.
1: Yeah, I always always tell my students that English in a very real way is the search for truth. It's the truth through literature. It allows people to come together and debate ideas through a common source. So I, I
0: call English a search for truth. And I think I th- that's absolutely true. And, and you, you have very lucky students that you're teaching them that.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And I always think that Shakespeare endures because he comes closest to that human truth than any other author.
0: Would you agree? He does. He does. We have to you know, take Shakespeare with a grain of salt. He was very good about being familiar with other great authors and rewording what they had to say. But a lot of his knowledge, if you search long enough, you begin to find that it it was somewhere before it was in Shakespeare, that, that he found it, whether it was whether he read it or whether someone told him that it was a very literary age of Elizabethan England. So one sees that he got a lot of his understanding of human nature, of the human psychology from other authors, but he worded it better than anybody else did.
1: You know, we'll get more into your your book in, in just a bit. But I will point out: is that why there's a moment in your novel where Shakespeare is reprimanded by John D. because he ripped off a few lines of a of sonnet for Comtesse DN.
0: That's so right. You're,
1: you're you're making reference to his propensity for ripping off other people.
0: Yes, that's right. <laughs> and no one cared. There was no such thing as plagiarism back then. In fact when someone went to the theater if they were in the good seats and had the ability to sit down they often brought what they call their tables with them which we would call a pamphlet a a, a tablet a tablet and they would sit there and it and it wasn't necessarily just shakespeare's plays it was any play and if, if one of the characters said a really intriguing line they would write it down after all the plays were done in the afternoon there was plenty of sunlight and and they would write it down and and if they would try to incorporate those lines they'd heard in the theater or pro- perhaps in other people's conversations and put it in their own conversation to make them look more witty, to look make them look more more wise.
1: I've absolutely never heard of that before. That That, that is, 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 is funny to think that Shakespeare not only would be the greatest writer, but the greatest plagiarist of all
0: time. Yes, perhaps he is. Uh, Hamlet himself refers to this as I'll set it down in my tables. And that's exactly what he's talking about. I'll put it into my conversation.
1: That is great. And so when you're not in theater, you're also right now, are you still an adjunct professor at the University of California?
0: I don't know, actually, because of, because of, I have not been there for two years. I wasn't fired and I didn't quit. My My theater responsibilities got in the way and, and the college was very good about saying, go off, do the theater and come back when that's all taken care of. But while I was gone, the people that hired me got moved out. I was never sent a letter that you're fired. So I really don't know what my position is at USC right now. And because my schedule has been rather busy, I I haven't had the time really to say, oh, I'd like to go back to USC. I haven't investigated that. But I would assume that should I want to go back, it shouldn't be too hard for me to go back and teach Shakespeare again.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine someone saying no to Armin Shimmerman. <laughs> when you want to perform Shakespeare, they're going to let you be on the, teach it. So as, as an English teacher who does teach Shakespeare and you as a, a former um, or maybe current adjunct professor at the University of California, what tips can you offer me to how to make Shakespeare feel more relevant and more alive to my students?
0: Well, the first thing I would say is your students and you must go to the dictionary and know what every word means that that is essential usually what happens is is because you want a line to mean something and it doesn't necessarily mean what you want it to mean you, you you get get lost in the thicket because the what follows doesn't make sense and and what i have done all of my life as a shakespeare teacher is to insist that the, everybody knows what they're talking about and when when that happens Shakespeare becomes a lot clearer. The other thing, it's hard work for you. I would sit down uh, one summer when you've got some time and study the principles of rhetoric and because rhetoric is essential to, to my understanding of Shakespeare. If you do not understand the principles of rhetoric, you do not understand why Shakespeare writes the way he does. And until you, you get that, because it's not the meanings of words so much, it's how the words are put together. That's what rhetoric does. And once you understand why he put these words together in the in the pattern that he did, all of a sudden the plays and the language will be enormously clearer. All my life, people have been kind enough to say, Armin, when you do Shakespeare, it makes sense to me. How do you do that?" And it's because I understand the principles of rhetoric. So, if if they're young students, I, I think rhetoric might be a little over their heads. Not that it's difficult. It's just a different language altogether. Mm. But for you, the teacher, I would investigate the principles of rhetoric. All right, definitely.
1: Is there any sources that you recommend the most? For-
0: yes, there's a there's a there's a book and I don't remember the exact title of the book, but I do remember the author. Her name is Sister Miriam Miriam Joseph. So she's a nun. Sister Miriam Joseph. And I, I believe it's something like the techniques of language in Shakespeare, something like that. It is a very dry book, but but it has everything you need to know in order to understand Shakespeare's rhetoric.
1: Now, it seems like there's a debate in the world of education, at least in the high school realm, about teaching Shakespeare and, or teaching a modern version
0: of the prose. No, 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 don't t- teach a modern version of the prose. What's the point there? You ask me why I like Shakespeare. I like Shakespeare because of the language, because of how he puts words together. So getting rid of that just to make it easier for the students is anathema. It's like saying, you want to learn French? Just learn the words that are the cognates, the words that are the same in English as they are in French. No, of course, that would be ridiculous. That that argument of learning modern Shakespeare or modern language is just because people just don't want to put in the work.
1: I agree with you 100%. And I'm someone who b- does believe very strongly in the language. Not only that, though, but there are dividends that are paid by making students learn the complicated language. It, it, it it's, it's almost like learning advanced math. It expands how your process, your comprehension works.
0: Right. And if you learn the principles of rhetoric, if they are going to go into writing or anything literary, those principles will, will be enormously helpful for whatever they do. Surprisingly enough, when people ask me, well, you're... The techniques in Shakespeare, do they apply to other things as well? And I would say absolutely. And one of the one of the things that it applies to, and this I'm usually talking to actors, is to commercials. The same technique that's in Shakespeare is in the way they write commercials.
1: Can you can you go into the more detail? Sure.
0: I, I was talking to you before about antithesis. Well, antithesis no. is is there in, in commercials as well. Don't buy that product, buy this product. And and once you realize that in commercials you only are allowed so much, so many words in a short period of time. You've only got thirty seconds to do the spot, so they cram as much as they can in each word that they choose. Understanding why each of those words is important, which is what Shakespeare does for you, will be the same thing for shooting a commercial.
1: I think that's that's brilliant. I never even thought about that as far as, as commercial goes. The other thing I love about Shakespeare, and I think, why is important. I think it. Opens your mind up to I think a reality of good writing, and I think the reality of good writing is good writing is inherently musical. It sounds as good to your ear and and how it comes out of your mouth
0: as the words' meaning does as well. Would you agree on that? I would totally agree. And as a writer, oftentimes my choice of words is really the litmus test is whether it sounds right in my ear. Being an actor, I'm 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 listening to the sound the way an actor does. And as a writer, I'm trying to marry those two techniques together.
1: And I would say, and like I said, I would also say it's very tactile. I mean, literally how it comes out of your
0: mouth, it, it feels good saying great writing, great sentences. Right. Yes, absolutely. And Shakespeare was very good at that. He was very good about making words, choosing words that sound, that have sounds in them that replicate what the word is saying, for instance, let's take the opening speech of Richard III. Let's see. No, I'm trying to remember it for a second here. Hold on. Now is the winter. Yeah. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York. Hear all the S's. And I hmm. over accentuated them for you. But the, the S's are begin- subconsciously are, are telling you this is a villain.
1: Because it, the sound uh, it came to like a hiss of a snake. Yeah, exactly once again that it's amazing
0: when you start peeling away the layers of shakespeare just how deep the layers are right and any good writer uh, let's not just focus on shakespeare any good writer a a writer that stood the test of time probably uses all those techniques The, the the technique of of rhetoric is not strictly an elizabethan thing rhetoric was taught up until taught very strongly up until the beginning of the 20th century and then, some for some reason in the American school system, that was sort of dropped. It's still taught. You can still get rhetorical classes, perhaps in college, or maybe even in Latin classes, where, where rhetoric is very important. But, 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 most good writers have some background, not only in in other good writers, but also in the techniques of rhetoric.
1: I, I, I will say, as far as when we were talking about ed, the education. I feel like the material has been dumbed down to the students instead of raising the students to the material.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and what's surprising is when, at least in my experience, when I show them the complexity of the language and how to solve it, because you can't just show them the complexity that turns people off. Then they think they're too dumb. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. But if you give them the techniques to solve those problems, all of a sudden you've got a fan for life. Not, not of me, but a fan for Shakespeare.
1: Yes. And when when I, when I read your book, Ilaria Betrayal of Angels. Okay. In reading your, your words and your language, I, I felt there was a Shakespearean element to where you were playing with the rhythm and the sound and the, and the, the feel of the words as well. Would. I I hope so. And I'm
0: glad you felt that way. I mean, that was my intent. I I not only deal with the history of the times, but I also want to deal with, with the sound. I, I, it's not, you know, you've read the book, you know, that it, that it's not that hard of language to understand. There is a taste of the Elizabethan language to it, but, but the rhetorical principles are all through the book. And that's perhaps what makes it sound like Elizabethan language because of the rhetoric. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Continue. Sure. But but I I I thought of my book as a time machine, that I could try to get people back to that period in the best way that, that I knew how to do it.
1: And I will totally agree that it, it, it you, I really did feel transported. And I will say, um, as we go into more into the text, the beginning of your book, when you have the young Shakespeare talking to Burbage, it felt like you were writing, like I said, really did feel Shakespearean, not only because of the language, but you definitely put in also some of the language and dark humor and of, that you find in Shakespeare, especially when you talk about like what, the, what was written for, like the groundlings, things of that nature. I felt it in that first chapter. I mean, the first part of that book totally has that. Am I correct with that?
0: I, yes. And, and ironically, that was one of the later chapters that I wrote. My editor recommended something. And that's what I came up with. I mean, she didn't. She didn't suggest the, the what was to happen. She just said uh, we should start with a with a chapter from Shakespeare. That's that you know Shakespeare in, with, with the Shakespearean character, and and I wrote that chapter actually pretty quickly. That once I had the aha moment of ah, this is what I'll write about. It it, it wrote itself pretty much.
1: Like I said I, I think the book is just brilliant, and I one of the fun things about the book. That you do write about the young William Shakespeare, the, the, the like the nascent Shakespeare before he became. I mean, he's not even his name isn't even Shakespeare at this moment
0: until later. Without ruining too much, it's not. I won't ruin anything by explaining that, as you're hinting at. I I don't spell Shakespeare the word Shakespeare the way it's usually spelt. and the reason I don't do that is in the um, six or so examples of Shakespeare writing his own name. We have about six of those in reality. He oftentimes <laughs> spelt it differently. Again, spelling was not de rigueur. You could spell a word any way you wanted. So this is one of the many ways that he spelt his name. And it's sort of my reference to what I said before, that spelling was not written in stone. Well, a spelling B anyway, was not written in stone.
1: So when my students or students complain that spelling doesn't matter, they're technically correct. But for most of our time, it, does, it didn't. Yes,
0: that's exactly right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's pretty fun. My, my, my students will, will get a kick out of that. So when you were planning and plotting your mind, the writing of Elyria, uh, which hopefully I'm pronouncing it right again, at least I'm really bad with pronouncing things, was the idea first to explore the young Shakespeare or was it the continuing story of John Dee? Where, where did you start with your formatting the idea and with which character did you first be, think of following?
0: It's a great question. Thank you for that. Yeah. I have written other books previous to, to the Illyria trilogy. And all of them, pretty much all of them, have to do with John D, who is a fascinating character for me. So this book, the Illyria trilogy, the first book being A Betrayal of Angels, started out with the idea of writing a book about John D. In fact, while I was writing the other books, though I was writing about John D, Dr. John D, I w- I was really f- my publishers really wanted me to write more a book about my Star Trek character, Quark. And so there's really more quark in those novels than, than it is John D. And I, I felt that I was beholden to John Dee and I swore that one day I would write a book that was closer to his character. So to answer your question, the original idea was to write a book about John Dee. However, being fascinated with Shakespeare, I, I wanted to write a book about Shakespeare as well. And, and certainly one could argue even to me, that Shakespeare takes over the, 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 the trilogy, that that his character becomes perhaps the more dominant of the two, even though I meant originally for John D to be the dominant character.
1: I don't, I, I'm not, so far, at least I've only read the first book, but I don't know if I would agree that Shakespeare dominates it. John D is a very strong character. And, oh, go
0: ahead. Uh, he is, but but I'm also familiar with the two books that follow. Oh gosh! And uh, <laughs> and, and as I wrote, just Shakespeare took more and more. Now we don't lose D. D is still, you know, it's 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 a it's a buddy picture, but but I I think Shakespeare becomes the more forceful element in the plays.
1: Well, one thing I found interesting was that in reading the story. And getting a sense, in aura of the of the characters that are in, the, in in the novel, John D feels at times quite towering. But historically, he was only five
0: feet. Is that correct? Is that? Oh art- well, no. You know, I don't know, but I, that surprises me. Thank you for telling me that. I, I always thought of him as a, as a taller person. I'm giving something away here. For years, I worked with a wonderful actor on Star Trek. His name was Rene Obergenois, and for me, Rene stood about. Six one, six two, something like that. So in my mind, I, because I don't, I know a lot about John D, but not the personal things. And so I just migrated what I knew about Renee into that character. But if John D was only five foot, I've certainly missed that element altogether because I think of him as a much taller person.
1: Well, don't quote me completely, but I, I was because this is from a quick search, I th- I'm pretty. Um, Have I, read, I lost but... you. No, no, no. can you hear me? Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I don't know. My audio is working. Oh, my, inter- my internet connect um, is unstable. Can you hear me now? I can now, yes. Yeah, my internet connection apparently is unstable, so I may flip in and out slightly. My, my, my apologies. Technology sucks. <laughs> but it's something I was, when I was going through on John D, I, I, I found something about that information, but where that source is, I, I, I didn't check. So don't totally quote me on that. But one thing, I, going back a little bit to Shakespeare, you write Shakespeare when he's about, if my memory serves, about, 614 no I, if 16, 16. 16 sorry 16 we don't have a lot of information of Shakespeare at that time period so what did you surmise what he
0: was like or did you find sources that verified what he was like there are no sources really of what Shakespeare was like between the time that he finished schooling we're not even sure that he finished schooling but when he finished schooling in Stratford and became the playwright that we all know. It's it's a, it's a an unknown period that many authors have explored. There's a wonderful novel out now called Hamnet that explores that time period as well. So we, there is no, there's no reference for that. No one knows what happened in those years. And my novel, um, among the many things that it tries to do, is try to explain what he was doing in those years and to explain or to give a, a thesis anyway a, about how he became the writer that he became.
1: And, and and I think that's a great fun. I mean, one of the fun things early in the, in the novel, and it might feel, make every writer feel better about it, that you had this in your novel, is that you make allusions to Shakespeare's future. And one of them is that he writes a play, Amnit, that yeah. fails... That fails horribly. That fails horribly. And he can't. he's trying to figure out why it was bad, and he feels horrible about it. As a writer, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I think I've been there before. I'm glad
0: Shakespeare had the same issue, even if it's only in fiction. And that's partially historically correct. Partially. Let me explain it. Okay. The play Amleth existed in, in Eliz- Elizabethan times, or perhaps before Elizabethan times. We don't know who wrote it, There is no copy of the play anywhere. All we have are the bad reviews. Those still exist. No one knows who wrote Amleth, but there's conjectures about who that person might have been. Harold Bloom, one of the great Shakespearean critics and scholars, suggests in his book that perhaps a very young Shakespeare wrote Amleth. And so that was the inspiration. So whether Harold Bloom and I are correct or not is up for future historians And researchers to find out. But I went with the idea that was suggested in the Harold Bloom book. So, would
1: it be fair if I were to say or guess that you're on the side that all the plays were written by Shakespeare? Shakespeare was not written by multiple different art authors?
0: Uh, I am to some extent. uh, I have a different take than the normal debate. Okay. Usually the debate is whether Shakespeare wrote it or, or Oxford wrote it or, or Queen Elizabeth wrote it or Marlowe wrote it. None of that makes any sense to me whatsoever. However, one of the things I totally believe, and I believe there's a lot of research that backs me up on this is that a lot of the plays, well, not a lot, the early plays and the late plays were probably co-written. Okay. And in fact, there's an interesting computer study that perhaps the first play that has Shakespeare's name on it is Henry the Sixth, Part Two. Believe it or not, Part Two came before Part One, and and the computer studies, the linguistic studies, seem to indicate that that play, Henry the Sixth, Part Two, is probably completely written by Marlowe. Okay, but but after that, I would say in the first couple plays he he co-wrote with other people. I would say the body of the work is probably Shakespeare's, but there are probably scenes that were written by other people. And that same scenario probably happened at the end of his career as well for two different reasons. Here's the, here's the reasons. When Shakespeare was starting out, as my first chapter in the book seems to hint at, is that he's not trusted by the producer and, and And therefore the producer is not going to allow him to write a full play by himself. He's going to have to get some help from people who have a little bit more experience. And that probably did happen. And in the latter part of Shakespeare's career, when he'd made a name for himself and made quite a nice fortune at it as well, he was just probably too tired to write a complete play and would just go out and hire people to help him with scenes uh, in the play. Uh, So, I think Shakespeare wrote all the plays that are attributed to him, except perhaps Henry VI, part two. But I do believe he may have had a lot of help in a lot of the plays.
1: Okay. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that Marlowe may have assisted, because once it, it often is portrayed that Marlowe was considered a,
0: a chief rival of Shakespeare and also well-known in his own right. Oh, my God. Marlowe was the god of Elizabethan theater. Uh, Shakespeare aspired to be another Marlowe.
1: So do you so you think Marlowe would allow his name or his work
0: to be assumed by somebody else? They often did if you okay. paid them. And, and they didn't have ownership problems. When Shakespeare wrote his plays and the theater put them on, that was it. He gave it to the theater. He didn't own it anymore. You know, the idea of royalties would never have occurred to him. So if, if someone says to Marlowe or to Shakespeare or to Green or to any of the the dozens of wonderful Elizabethan playwrights that were around. I need you to write a scene or two for me and we'll we'll put it under so and so's name. They said, How much you're paying me? And if the price was right, they'd said, Fine, okay, great.
1: That's incredible. It, it, it's such a different psychology than nowadays. I mean, nowadays, like I said, most writers, I mean there's ghostwriters, but most writers, the the ego would
0: come before the work, it would seem like. I, I'm sure Marlowe had a huge ego. There's no doubt about that. He died probably because of it. But but they were, you know, they weren't they weren't movie writers. They weren't making a ton of money as writers in the theater. The theater at that time was considered pornography. So they got paid something, but not a lot of money to write plays. So the more that they got paid, the more that they could pay their bills. Most of the Elizabethan writers, except for Shakespeare and and Marlowe, died pretty poor.
1: Oh wow! I mean, it, it, I really, like I said, one of the things I just loved about your book is once again, it's just how you show a, a young Shakespeare grow into Shakespeare. And the other thing, one thing I did wonder because you did bring it up is that, as you had said, you've written before, you wrote a trilogy of books called the Merchant Prince series, right? And I will say right now for my listeners. After finishing Illyria, or getting close to finishing about 100 pages before it, I went out and I bought the Prince trilogy, Merchant Prince trilogy. I'm waiting for it from Amazon. <laughs> it, it, it,
0: once you finish Elyria, you got to keep going. We'll have a second book coming out in November, so we can go there. They're not the same. Yes, John D occupies all of the books, but, but the, as I said earlier, it's not the same John D.
1: Well, actually, that's, a, that's going to be one of my questions: whether or not that was a they, they were somehow connected. But even to not connected, like I said, just the quality of Ilaria made me immediately want to check your other your other works and the Merchant Thank Print you. series. Thank you. I, I'm anxiously awaiting Amazon to finally get it here. <laughs> it's been longer than it's been three weeks, but whatever. And the other thing I found interesting about um, your book once again, Shakespeare's a wonderful character John Dee's is a wonderful character, I, and I think one of my favorite thing about him. As someone who is also an English teacher, I love his love of books. Mm. I love that he's a bibliophile and that he treats libraries like holy sites. You know what I'm saying? They're almost like sanctuary, you know? And I thought that was brilliant. Was that one of the things that you like about John Dee? Is that the love of books, the love of, you know, just of knowledge and
0: his pursuit of that? Yes, that's what John Dee was famous for. He may have been the original creator of the National Library in, in England. He had the largest library in England at the time. And this conjunction of Shakespeare and Dee together is not infeasible. In fact, during the many years of, of research, I once found a book that suggested that indeed, they had indeed, that Shakespeare had indeed read a book out of his library. So, but John Dee was a bibliophile. He adored books. He he He, he went broke buying books kept asking the queen and the government to give him a, a stipend so that he could create a national library but both Elizabeth and her predecessor queen mary didn't fork over any money so he did it on his own and and he and his family suffered because he was always broke buying books but he loved books he loved knowledge and 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 most of the the uh, literati of of europe would would pay visits to d because he was so incredibly literary and famous and a, a scholar of great repute.
1: Well, I know how he feels. I'm sure my wife would be angry is angry with my over expenditure of books as well. <laughs> <laughs> how much money goes to them? Are
0: you are you a bibliophile as well? Yes, but mostly I study Elizabethan things. The house is full of books, but they tend to be from one period. My wife is a much more eclectic reader, and and thanks to her, we have lots of books from many many different periods. But but I tend to be a, a luddite. And, and restrict my readings to Elizabethan things or, or before that, actually.
1: Just as, I know it's slightly offside, but when you, when you said Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth and, and Queen Mary refused to give them the money for the library, was it based on a lack of interest or do you think it was a fear of knowledge and what it could cause if
0: people were to, to gain that knowledge? I don't think it was a fear of knowledge. Elizabeth herself was a, was a bibliophile. Elizabeth loved learning, spoke many languages, and, and the reports of her that she could astound the courtiers were how much she knew about many things. So I don't think that applied to Elizabeth. Well,
1: I, I mean, I a, a think, fear of her people being knowledgeable. That's what I mean, the people getting...
0: No, I don't, I don't think that either. I, I think it was a matter, right out of today's newspaper, it's a matter of cost. Elizabeth in England was was always strapped for money, always strapped for money. So they had to be careful where they put the money that they did have. And this may not have been high. The, the other courtiers may not have thought that this was a good thing to spend money on.
1: Well, like I said, unfortunately, I have a different view. Like I said, I, have, I love books. I I. It, it... Finding a used bookstore, especially an old used bookstore, is one of the best moments you can do. You know, something about the, the old pages and the sound of the paper crinkling. That's, those are always my favorite <laughs> books I can find. <laughs> and
0: mine as well. And mine as well.
1: So, well, one, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple of the quotes that you have in your text, if you don't mind. If you have sure. time. All right, great. Uh, there's one quote from the text that uh, I was, was very intriguing that's spoken by D, uh, or at least he's thinking about it. He says, The sad player and I suffered the same tragedy. One's youthful ambition ripped away by a parent's failure to do right by you. It sounds like Dee's longing for knowledge and status is a byproduct of rebellion against parents that were like stifling. Is that kind of where you're headed
0: with that? Yes, exactly. Dee's father wasn't particularly, he was proud of his son, but but Dee always was upset that his father hadn't done more from him. And as, as you know from the novel, I equate that to Shakespeare as well. Who always felt his father could have done more for him, uh, and and we most historians believe that uh, John Shakespeare Shakespeare's father wasn't necessarily cheap, but he, he wasn't eager to have his son go into the theater, which any actor, director, writer probably would say the same thing about their parents as well.
1: You, for your for purposes of your novel, do you think that was the primary
0: bond that brought them together? Is that no? Theater- I think I think. I think the primary Bond, Shakespeare wanted to learn more, in my novel anyway, Shakespeare wanted to learn more about how to write well. And and he he thought that he could learn that by studying in in Dee's library. But of course, Dee has to leave. And so the second best thing was to study with the man who had collected all the books and had read all the books. And uh, so I, I do believe it's the two characters bond because of their their desire to to know more knowledge.
1: There's also multiple points with John D where you suggest that he's communing with angels. Yes. Is that something that D believes he's actually doing or is he something yes. he's trying to sell? Okay.
0: What one of the reasons D is not more famous is that for centuries this is this is what he did. He tried to communicate with angels. This is what the historical D did. And because history has looked down their nose at that desire he has been up until recently up until about 75 years ago you know had been was poo-pooed all the time but this is what he did he called they called it screeing he felt that he could he could talk to angels not through himself but through a seance if for want of a better term but it's not a seance and and he did do that and I thought I can't write a book about the real John D. without including some of that screen in it as well. So as the author
1: um, of this character, do you view it that in, in your mind when you're writing that he
0: literally is doing it or he and believes he's doing it? Uh, if you have a question about that, then I've written it well, because that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted the reader to decide that question for themselves.
1: Is this something that's going to be seen throughout the next two novels as well?
0: No, 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 not at all. I wanted, I wanted to do it in the first book, and then I wanted to leave it alone because it, it doesn't interest me, and it's it's not essential for the thrust of the story.
1: Well, I, I will say,
0: as the reader, it definitely got me thinking about it. <laughs>
1: I like, think I'm good, thinking hard good, about good,
0: it. Good. <laughs> good. I, I mean, he really, he, he really did think he could talk to angels a- and understand let me let me try to defend this historical person elizabethan times prior and and just after was a great age of discovery people were finding out about the new world people were finding out that the that the earth went around the sun and not vice versa people were finding out about mathematics the religions were trying to find out more about heaven the the, the protestant the a, reform, a revolution had started what some 50 years before it, it was a time when when the unthinkable was becoming thinkable and so everyone believed in the bible and the bible said angels existed so there was no reason not to believe that angels didn't exist so the question was how do you communicate with them and for a man of john d's learning a man who tried to create a dictionary of an, of angelic speech. This was a possibility, just as putting a man on the on the moon is a possibility. Unthinkable for the Elizabethans, but possible for us to think that way. Or to put, a, you know, a rover uh, on Mars, not once but twice through perseverance. So, so uh, he he believed he could do it, and and there was no reason why he couldn't do it. And lots of people in important places thought he could do it too, but he was. But he was considered by the people that didn't believe in him to be a witch. Witchcraft was believed in as well. So it was a very tenuous and precarious situation that he put himself into.
1: Well, I think that's one of the great things about how you wrote it. I mean, you do have this aura about him of intelligence, but you do because there is the, the words around him of witchcraft and other. I think you also mentioned once or twice. that Some people accuse him of satanic
0: things as well, that right. there's this dangerous aspect to him as well. Right. Three times during the course of his life, his library, which was, as I said before, extensive, huge, three times it was raided and destroyed, not completely destroyed, but attacked because the the mob thought that he was a devil worshiper.
1: Do you think there are books that are lost to history because of that, that he might have had the last copies.
0: There there are a lot of books lost to history and probably a, a number of them were lost because of D. Because what D wanted to do was retrieve books that were being lost understand when religion changed in england when it went from being a catholic country to an anglican country the the rabid people who were anglicans didn't want any books that had any references to catholicism and those books were burnt they were destroyed and and D spent his his life trying to find those books retrieve them save them from the fire and we we owe him for that but i'm sure a lot of books were not retrieved or they were just too expensive for him to buy and and they're lost to us for all time
1: so and and i think one thing that also was great about D is that he much of a man of focus that he is there's a line in your in your novel another one that i like that i think does a great job of describing john d without being blatant about it and when the great lines that you have you wrote this is a quote john d however pushes on heedless of human tragedy it it seems like this is a a reference to how single mindedly focused he is but part of me is also wondering does it also mean is it also a question of status that people may be in in
0: inconsequentialness of people who are not helping him in his ultimate goal yeah yes absolutely i think he was an elitist I know he was an elitist. And if you didn't live up to his measurement, he just cut you out. He didn't want to spend any time with you. So yeah, if if he didn't want to waste his time with fools.
1: Because he also was one of the I, I believe the, the phrase was well, I, or the exact one it was, he's one of the chief torturers for Queen Mary, I believe it was. Do you think
0: he had a numbness to death that he it didn't? Uh, they all didn't... did. They all did. Understand that in London, which is pretty close to where Deed lived. He lived somewhere between now modern day London and Heathrow. Somewhere between, we think of that all oh, as London, but but the city of London in that time was a much smaller area. So he lived basically between Heathrow and the city of London. But death in London, the average age of a Londoner was twenty two. Holy crap! So death was everywhere. The plague happened over and over and over again. People became inured to death. You know. It's it's horrible. Again, looking at modern times, we just passed five hundred thousand deaths from COVID in the United yeah. States. That's a horrible number, but we're sort of getting used to those numbers. So yes, I, I, death was more in their face because it was happening to their neighbors, to their relatives, to people in their villages, in their towns. But yes, death was was everywhere. Children died, people died. It, really. Twenty-two was the average age in London,
1: and and I think it's interesting that you mentioned the five hundred thousand deaths from COVID. And I, I was watching, um, I think it was CNN. And they're talking about how people. It's tragic to lose the here five people died.
0: It's a statistic to learn five hundred thousand people died. Exactly, it's, it's hard to get your mind around that, but but they saw death constantly, constantly, a- a- unless they were able to get themselves way out of London into the country where the plague wasn't spreading to. And the plague came over and over and over again. It wasn't just a plague. People died of accidents. People died of, of the cold, the flu. People people died of, you, you know, a horse does something and 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 you get bucked off and, and you're, you hit your head. Things like that happened over and over and over again. D- death w- was everywhere. And because death was everywhere, religion was enormously important. Because heaven was only one accident away.
1: So in many ways, when you're t- talking about John D talking about how he's healers of human tragedy, that it really is just, I'm to say lack of concern, but just, like I said, again, a, a numbness to the, just the
0: idea of those around him. Yes. I, I think the books insulated him from the world. And his studies insulated him from the world. He spent a lot of time in his library or, or dealing with uh, numbers. He was a great mathematician by the way, as well. And uh, I think it was a way of, of just psychologically not having to face the real world around him.
1: I mean, when when you think about the character of Dean, you think about the fact that he's married, that speaks very well of his wife, the kind of woman that someone like him could view as special in a, you know, someone who is as, I don't want to say tunnel vision, but, Extremely as focused as he is.
0: Yeah, Jane D was a very special woman. She took care of her husband. He didn't bring in a lot of money. He did have a lot of famous guests. So she had to feed them. She had to take care of them. She had to figure out a way to, to, to give them the proper entertainment that was needed for people of such high caliber. And she had to live with a man who perhaps most of the day was locked away in his library. So I give great kudos to Jane D and not only does she have to take care of her husband, but she had her children to take care of. And, and because of, of D's quasi celebrity, she had to deal with the people of the town as well.
1: Well, like I said, I I really did love what what you wrote. And I love how, once again, how you wrote D and I think when another, if if you don't, I'd have a few more questions, if you have time. Sure. There's a great, another great line that you wrote that, that I really like that, as someone who's also a bibliophile, I can totally appreciate. The line is, I mean, he's, he's kind of, he's not babbling, but he's trying to protect himself towards the end of the novel. I can give away the, the circumstance. But he says, a work like this with its virtues, its wisdom, its words of comfort and wise counsel can just for- transform our bodily rectangles of dust into the excellence of an angel. And I feel like that quote is you talking about your love of writing and reading.
0: Well, I don't remember writing that line. I'd, I recognize it, but I don't remember writing it. I, I would say that I'm, you know, I'm all the characters, just as a director of a play is all the characters. I am all the characters and bits and pieces of me are imbued in all the characters. So yes, yes, I suppose the answer is yes.
1: Like I said, it, it, a, it was a great line. And I said, and like I said, I think I felt myself in that line as well. When We talk about the importance of books and and both as a reader and a teacher, I was like, "Yes, <laughs> 100% John D. You're 100% right about that." Like, there's so many good lines. There's one more line I do want to talk about. It occurs with Shakespeare, and he's thinking, "What then is the intrinsic quality of man, and what the outer pretense? Maybe a man's quality is neither black nor white, neither good nor bad, but a continuum seeking balance between the extremes." And I kind of right. felt that's your view of humanity—that it's not we're not good people or bad people; we're kind of on a pendulum trying to find
0: where the center would be precisely i i believe that's a huge theme in all of shakespeare's plays so you know i've ripped that off from my study of shakespeare that i that he that he always thought that it was a yin and yang situation yes there were villains but sometimes they would do non-villainous things and yes there were heroes who would sometimes do villainous things i, I believe that was part and parcel of how Shakespeare created his characters. And so it's no surprise that I put those thoughts into his mind.
1: And and, and I really do like that. And I think it's a, it's a mistake when writers feel when they're writing a character, especially a villain, that they always have to write the villain doing villainous things. It's like, no, no one does that. No one spends their entire day looking, doing bad things all the time. <laughs> right.
0: I, I, I tell my actors in acting class, if you have... The, the fortune, the good fortune to play a villain, you must not think of him or her as a villain. You must find what it is that that that, that character wants that aligns with what you want and, and go after it tooth and nail. The difference between a villain and a non-villain may be you go a little too far to get what you want. But that said, three-dimensional characters can only be three-dimensional if they have the yin and yang quality of good and bad, or opposites, meeting in some sort of temperance between the two.
1: And 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 I love that. And I and I, and I do think as individuals we always try to avoid the sharper edges of our nature. And on any side it's dangerous to be over to try to you know you don't to go on balance let's say or bad side because once again you don't want to fall into that pit nor i think overly on the good side you don't want to be open to that level of vulnerability and maybe even negativity to be good 100 you need to find that safe middle that's the only place where you are protected
0: exactly temperance is what i call it to find the temperance the the sweet spot between the two opposites the sweet spot between the two antitheses
1: and, I, and that's brilliant and, and there's one other character i do want to mention before i let you go that i i never knew about until i read your novel and i thought the character is cool especially as someone who's jewish i thought he was fantastic going to get the name wrong captain palach palach, palach, palach yeah. sorry thank you so much and um like i said someone who's jewish i never heard of jewish pirates before and i thought the inclusion, the inclusion of him was fantastic i, I thought to myself Holy crap. I always I never knew I wanted one, a Jewish fires, but thank God he exists. He's so cool.
0: where did knowledge of him come from. in my re- research about Elizabethan times, you probably oh my God, I've just forgotten Muranos, you probably know about the Muranos and which the Moranos were Jews who, in order to exist in a Christian society, convert to Catholicism or Christianity, but secretly still perform all the rites of a Jew. And they lived secret lives as as Moranos, and there were people like Polish, and and I th- just decided that since my books have a lot to do with the conflict between Protestantism and Catholic and excuse me and and Catholicism, that I wanted to add Judaism as well. After all, I'm Jewish as well, and didn't want to exclude my religion from the book altogether. So and there are. There were some very famous anti-Semitic moments in Elizabethan times. By the way, Jews were not allowed in England during Elizabeth's time unless they had very special permission, as my book spells out about wearing the yellow band around their arm. That's historically correct.
1: That is that is awesome. I didn't actually know about they weren't allowed in Elizabethan England at that time period. That's actually the news the was to me. Expelled from,
0: I I know Spain because it's an easy uh, date to remember, but the Jews were expelled from Spain, in or maybe it was England. I can't remember whether it was Spain or England in 1492. So, but I do know that in Elizabethan times, you had to get a very special permission to to come from another country if you were Jewish.
1: That, I mean, it seems like really it does seem like the history of
0: Jews is being expelled from somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. And, And but there were there were areas in Europe where that was was being turned around. And I'm 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 probably misquoting here by saying Geneva was one of the places. Antwerp was perhaps another one where where the the city and the and the area around the city said in order to promote commerce, In order to promote study, in order to to promote ecumenicalism, we're going to allow the Jews to live here and to be equal citizens with other people. Now, that didn't always last for very long, but some people tried to do that.
1: So do you think Captain Palach? well, not, not do you think, I mean, does he show up in later novels? Uh, he does, yes. And I will just say, as a fan of yours and a fan, apparently, of Captain Palach, if you ever feel like writing a second series of trilogy not using John D. Captain Palach is a great character. <laughs> you well, must write more of him.
0: This morning was the first time I even considered that idea of writing another trilogy, and I wondered what it would be about. So thank you for that. Maybe it'll be about Palach. Okay.
1: Please do. Like I said, I think there's a lot of people, especially those of us who are Jewish, who felt good knowing there was a character like him historically, you know, especially during this time period. He he sounds like a fascinating character, and I think I would like to know more about him.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were Jews in high places throughout Europe, but it, it was thin ice for them. They had to walk very carefully. Many of them became Muranos, but because if you were going to be promoted... You know, these countries in Europe were very religious oriented. If you weren't Catholic, you weren't going to get very far in Spain. If you weren't Anglican, you weren't going to get very far in England. If you weren't Lutheran, you weren't going to get very far in the Swedish countries. Yeah, religion is is a huge part of these times. And that was perhaps one of the inspirations for writing my books was to try to get people to know that to sort of educate a world that only thinks of merry old England as a great place to be, and wouldn't it be nice to have lived there? No, it, for most people, it would have been a horrible, horrible place to live.
1: Well, now that you brought that up, it sounds like it's possible. I mean, I might be totally wrong on this. Was the hatred of the Jews in England just a hatred of those who weren't Protestant, or was it specifically back to the ideas of the Jews killed Jesus, which it seems to be one of the hatreds? Latter.
0: Probably both churches taught that the the Jews were not to be trusted. And uh, so and also most most Englishmen never met a Jew or 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 more for that matter. So anything that's not familiar usually is not trusted.
1: No, that, that that does seem to be the, the, the theory of things that we anything that's not us, we, we do the first the first thought is hate. And well first thought is fear, then hate before and somewhere hundred years down the road comes finds acceptance sometime when it's a little too late for it to matter.
0: <laughs> exactly. So I think you're right. Probably uh, distrust and then hate, but, but, but the, the, the teachings that, you know, the Bible says that the Jews killed Christ and you know, it was, that was taught over and over again. <laughs> oh, and, and the stereotype of the Jew was, was always there And if you've never met a Jew, then there's nothing to dissuade you from that.
1: You know, I I totally agree. There's actually twice in my life without the person wasn't trying to be insulting, but I have been asked in in them with total sincerity, is it true that Jews are born with tails? What, uh, one was a girl I was dating before, we, you know, it got serious. And one was in a classroom where they were asked, is that true? And I was shocked by the question the first time I was, I found it almost humorous the second time, but I was like, Jesus Christ. This is, and they both learned it in church, <laughs> in Sunday school.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Misinformation. Terrible. It's terrible.
1: And I know early, according to the, the, your novel, John D was with us on the side of the Catholics while Mary was in power, became the side on the Protestants when the, Elizabeth is in power, did he carry the same prejudices against religions, including the Jews, as the rest of his
0: people, in your opinion? In my opinion, no, because in the section about Palash, he mentions that he's gone off, and I've forgotten the city, in Europe, where he went to study with a rabbi. He wanted to know more about the Kabbalah, and which, by the way, a 100 years before, the 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 Vatican was interested in studying the Kabbalah as well, but that changed uh, o- almost overnight. But but D wanted to study the Kabbalah, and he studied with the the Rabbi of and I can't remember the city's name. So I I don't think he was as prejudiced because because of what we were just talking about. Mm. He had known these people, he had met them, he had he had dinner with them. All of a sudden, they weren't the devils that the church had told him that they were. I, I ha- believe he believed that that the Kabbalah had secret knowledge that would be useful for his exploration into discovery of angels.
1: I, I also heard, but p- potential that, but I think maybe based on the Merchant of Venice, that's some question of Shakespeare's view of Judaism. Would you hold that that wasn't a thing which
0: like Shylock, why not? or do you think? Well, Shylock is a is a, a play written for two reasons, probably. One, There was an infamous case of of a Jewish doctor working for Elizabeth who was thought to be a traitor. And that prompted The Jew of Malta, written by Marlowe, which was a very successful play. And and I'm sure Shakespeare's partners suggested to him, why don't you write one of those kind of plays? And so The Merchant of Venice is, is probably a result of that desire. There is some suggestions that perhaps... Shakespeare was enamored of a Jewish girl. There's no proof of that. There's there's a lot of talk about that, but there is no proof. So it's a possibility. And and understanding that he was still married and still had children in in Stratford. But but Shakespeare was uh, probably not true blue to Anne Hathaway.
1: (laughs) Everything I've read is that they're actually – he somewhat resented her. I mean, she was older than he was by a
0: bit, but he liked the money, but resented. I don't know. He got some money from her. That's true. He probably resented his marriage to her, whether he resented her or not. Don't know. That's why this new book, Hamnet, is is fascinating to read, because it deals with that question. But I, I he spent a lot of time away from his family, away from his wife, away from his children, away from Stratford. I know it was a long distance and I know he made his money in London, but as a husband, I, I find that very strange behavior. Why wouldn't they move to London? Good question. London? <laughs> he was getting rich. Why didn't he move his family to London? Right, right, right. If he couldn't go to Stratford because he needed, he was needed in London. Why didn't he move his family to London? He had residences there. Yeah. So I don't think it was a, a marriage made in heaven. The Shakespeare marriage.
1: Bell- I, I will say, I, I think your, your novel is fantastic. As I've kept saying, I think it's wonderful. So the next book is being released.
0: Uh, contractually it's, it's meant to come out in November of 2021. I am very close to my final polished book too. And I, I hope to go into conversation with my publisher to maybe bring the book out earlier than November. And there are reasons for that. And then hopefully then the third book would, would come out earlier as well. I, I I will, you know, I will let the cat out of the bag and say it's a cliffhanger for for book number one. Yes. And so I'd like to get the other two books out so that people don't feel misused, (laughs) that they go through all those pages only to find out that it's a cliffhanger.
1: I, I will say one thing well i love the novel my last words when I finished the book was god damn it
0: <laughs> without the book too yeah uh the reason for it being a cliffhanger it was never meant to be one it is that when I sold the book the publishers were very kind about the writing that they too were very happy with the way I wrote and then they after buying the book they said and how many words do you have and when I told them their jaws dropped and they said, You don't have <laughs> one book, you have three books. And so in order to make it three books, I had to come up with two cliffhangers.
1: Well, I I will say I found from it very gutsy. When, when I read, you know, the first book you have to became in book two before the book one had come out, I was like, that's a lot of confidence in in your writing to,
0: you know. Uh- I'm I'm very proud of my writing and I'm very flattered about what you've said about it and I think anyone who reads my book hopefully will be of the same opinion but but certainly my publishers were one of the first to recognize what I was doing and and were appreciative of it and uh, they took a big risk on buying three books and I hope that that risk pays off and I ask everyone who's listening to this to you know go to amazon.com or go to my publishers website which is www. Oh my God! I've just forgotten. Jumpmaster, sorry. Jumpmaster Press. So go to www.jumpmasterpress and dot com and and buy the book there. But you can indeed get it in Amazon as well.
1: Yeah. Like I said, the other thing I do, I do ask. I'm gonna and I'm gonna use uh, my, my my position right now and say,
0: are there teasers you can offer me on book two to tide me over <laughs> till the next till the book comes out? I, I can understand. The primary mission is to find out if uh, the count is loyal to the queen. So book two is about exploring that. And it, it because of the cliffhanger <laughs> that I have for book one, it necessitated me writing another hundred pages that I never anticipated <laughs> writing in order to deal with the cliffhanger. <laughs>
1: well, like I said, I, it was great. And like I said, and i just repeat one more time, Captain Palau deserves a trilogy. Just wanna throw that out there when you have time and you're ready. Okay.
0: Just do another trilogy. All you need to do is... is, is he's a fascinating character. And uh, you know, that's not a bad idea. Thank you for that. It is... He's a fascinating character and, and, and could indeed deserve a novel of his own. Yeah.
1: And I just want to thank you so much for talking with me, Mr. Sherman. You, you are absolutely fascinating. The, the writing was fantastic. It was great to talk to someone who understands the material of Shakespeare so well as well. And thank you so much for spending your time with me. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for the opportunity. Definitely my pleasure. Have a very good night and hope you come back sometime to talk about book two. Ask me, I'll be there. <laughs> Definitely will. Thank you so much, sir. You're welcome. Bye Bye-bye bye now.
2: Bye-bye. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you and if you like what you heard and you want to hear more you gotta go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com we have a plethora plethora is such a it's such a snobbish word i like it though it's, it's a good word it's, we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and Artists of all walks of life, and editors, and writers, and oh my God, are you a lover of comic books like you, we are? And then there's so many. so many amazing people from the comic book world over at Spoilerverse.com, and I highly implore you to go there and check it out.
3: Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Geek Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds from the kitchen and so many more. Misery Point we Radio episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio's got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out, and check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you, every day on Swilloverse.com, for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. If you want to help support the site, You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash support country. Or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it, you know, obviously, on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long.
2: I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing, because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go <laughs> with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an Oceans of Podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind and eat more.